When you draw a card, I get a trigger. Whenever you attack, I get a trigger. You're targeting my thing, I get a trigger. When you cast a spell, I get a trigger. Well, you pay the two. A creature ATPs, I get a trigger. Well, you pay the two. It's just me, I think you forgot a trigger. Well, you pay the two. Judge my opponent, Mr. Trigger. Well, you pay the two. God, it's so unjust. When I attack with my goblin guide, I cry when your deck was stacked with the scry. Hello and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy. I'm here with my co-host, Anthony Nostradamus of the Modern Metamatics. That, that, there's no way that's a compliment, but what are How's you referring not a compliment? to? Look, Nostradamus you... not a super talented dude. Okay, I'm sure. I mean, to you, you probably would not respect Nostradamus, nor do I, to be fair. But some people... Here's what I'm saying. You oftentimes will talk about how a card is good and powerful and people should play in eternal formats, eternal formats that you have no familiarity with you don't follow them at all that's fair for example you're like why don't people play girl for battle with general Arcanist and legacy they're allowed to do that as well did they did they, that happen no oh okay but in modern <laughs> there is a card that you have sung the praises of ever since it was released that is seeing some modern play for the first time could you perhaps maybe guess what it is uh saddled rhyme stack no i'll give you a hint okay it is as part of a package with Asmore and the Underworld Cookbook. Okay, that's a pretty different direction. <gasps> Wait, is it Bag of Holding? No, it's not oh, Bag of Holding. Damn. That would be amazing if it was. <laughs> you got me excited for a second. It's Feasting Troll King, Anthony. Oh, man. You're like, that's this card's awesome. good. Why don't people play this card in eternal formats? And everyone's like, uh, blah, 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 that's a Doom Blade. You're like, but it comes back from food. Turns out it's great in modern with Asmore and the Underworld Cookbook. I always knew it was. At least as of right amazing. now. We're recording this a little bit ahead of when it's going to come out for for complicated reasons. And will the meta have totally changed by then? Will something be banned? Who knows? But right now, Feasting Troll King, solidly modern playable. Amazing. That kind of explains why there have been a couple Feasting Troll Kings on people's wish lists. Got to the bottom of that mystery. Like how people have underestimated Feasting Trollkin' for years and, and not seen <laughs> its potential, this episode of Lucky Paper Radio, we're going to be talking about... We're going to be taking advantage of the new Cube Cobra popularity feature. For those that aren't aware, if your cube is on Cube Cobra, and it should be, you can now view the cards in your list sorted by the popularity of those cards, which is the percentage of cubes on Cube Cobra that include them, which I think is a very interesting and eye-opening perspective on one's cube. For this episode, I have found 10 cards that I think are woefully underplayed across all of cubes, and we'll talk about why. These cards are cards I play in my own cube that I think people should be playing in their cubes too, Anthony. And so we're going to talk about that on this episode. I definitely also found some value in this feature. Uh, my list is not very much like the traditional cube that most people are building. So I wouldn't say many of the cards that are unpopular in mine are things that I would recommend to anybody. But there are definitely a couple interesting features and sort of uh, aspects of, of the cube that that reveals. I wonder how different my cube will have to be before you'll start to think that maybe my cube is not the typical cube thing everyone is I mean, have you looked too. at this feature with our two cubes side by side? Yours is like, way everything's over on the right side, and mine's like, everything's on the left side. That's a little bit true. Though I do think my cube differs a lot from like the MTGO Vintage Cube, for example. 
almost as much as it differs from Eurocube. I'm not sure it's that much. My point is, I think there's a little more variety in that monolith of power max cubes than perhaps you give it credit for. Oh, there definitely is. Anyway. I'm not going to be telling everybody over here that they should be putting Feasting Troll King in their cube, for example. Why not? Okay, you should play Feasting Troll King. Didn't you cut it because it was too good? I definitely did. (laughs) Card was ridiculous. See? Turns out, it's modern broken. We've gone from modern, solidly playable to broken. I'm sure it's banned by the time this podcast comes out. Probably. I think more likely they'll just ban the cookbook or something. Anyway, we are going to mount defenses for unpopular cards on this episode. So that should be exciting. But first, we're going to do our pack one, pick one from a listener submitted cube. This week, Anthony, our cube comes to us from listener Gina. It is a 270 card travel cube. We are big champions of smaller cubes on this podcast. And this cube is no exception. Gina has found that with 270 cards, she gets all the variety she needs for all of her drafts. And, uh, you know, saves a little bit of space, saves a little bit of money, and can carry this thing around a little more easily. So, other than that, I would say a pretty, you know, traditional Power Max vintage cube list, unpowered. Certainly some interesting inclusions for us to dig into. Do you have any thoughts before we uh, dive into this pack? So, looking through the cube and the list, it's definitely, like you said, a very powerful cube. It's got a lot of the classics we're used to seeing. Uh, compared to some of the cubes that uh, I've played more, I think that it's maybe leaning a little bit less aggressive. So, I might be more excited about taking some big, splashier stuff. All right, well, speaking of big, splashy stuff, here is the pack. We have Grave Titan, Burst Lightning, Verdant Catacombs, Sword of Feast and Famine, Overgrown Tomb, Mishra's Factory, Skyclave Shade, Lightning Bolt, Krenko, Tin Street, Kingpin, Searing Spear, Ophiomancer, Sensei's Divining Top, Core Skyfisher, Demonic Tutor, and Umazawa's Jite. This pack is stacked. We kind of ended on some high notes there with uh, with Tudor and Gta. I would I would say, is I mean, is this just a, an easy pick? Is this just a, a demonic Tudor not close? Many people would say that. But there are other people that would say that demonic Tudor is actually not that great because it just draws a card for two mana. It happens to be the it's best a, card in your a deck. Pretty good two mana cantrip. It's it's probably the best two mana cantrip ever printed. I think it's a little bit of a pick personally between demonic Tudor and Gta okay. because. Demonic Tutor is a better card. It is somewhat committal. You're committing to black. GTA, probably among the best colorless cards you can run. Although, if uh, if this cube is a little less aggressive, if it does have combos or other ways to win the game that are not strictly through creature combat, then GTA falls off quite a bit, I think. Yeah, I do see, I think, at least some reanimator, which uh, can can be a little bit challenging for GTA to really be effective. Uh, yeah, I do not want my GTA against reanimator, but I do want my demonic tutor to go find my removal spell, grave hate, board wipe, whatever I need to get out of the fact that my opponent reanimated something big. Right. So I, I do think I would take the demonic tutor here, but it's yeah, definitely close. There's also Verdant Catacombs is, is worth a mention, and uh, I mean, Grave Titan is great. <laughs> grave Titan <laughs> is great. We're not going to take true. it, but... After the tutor and GTA, I'm on the fetch land... And then probably just Lightning Bolt. Lightning Bolt, yeah. Lightning Bolt is a really good magic card, turns out. <laughs> turns out three damage to anything is just really messed up. Turns out. Turns out. All right, not the most spicy pack, because, you know, Demonic Tutor. But I do appreciate the small cube. Thank you to listener Gina for sending it in. If you want to have your cube on Lucky Paper Raider, you can mail it to mail at luckypaper.co with your name and pronouns. I do have to confess, I did find a whole crap ton of emails in my spam folder from people. Uh, unfortunately, a large number of these emails, which I guess are a little bit of text with a link, just kind of get hit by spam filters, and I had not been checking that regularly. So if you sent your cube in over the past, maybe just send it in again. Uh, if we didn't do it on the show and you sent your cube in, maybe send it in again. I'm going to be checking that spam folder regularly from now on to make sure that fewer things slip between the cracks at the very least. And make sure to uh, include a poem or some randomly generated text in that email so the spam filters don't catch it. 
it's an interesting question. How would you how would you try and get around a spam filter? I mean, there, there can't be any predictable way. Otherwise, all of the spam bots would also do the thing. Right, right. Great question. I <laughs> I am not a security expert, and this is not something I've given a lot of thought to. But uh, I'm also a little concerned because there's another spam filter on the registrar before they forward the email that I don't even have access to. Yeah, those are terrifying. They can't forward emails that meet some spam criteria because then their own email server is considered a spam distributor, which means that some emails get gobbled up on a level I have no access to. How about just, uh, you know, your favorite recipe? Yeah, send in your favorite recipe. We also got a great suggestion on Reddit this week for what to call that segment. Oh my segment. God, I saw it. You saw it? Kitchen Table Magic. That's what we're going to call it. Thank you, listener, for pointing that out. I'm going to go in Wuburg order here for the uh, unpopular cards, and I'm pulling entirely from the 1% to 2% and 3 to 5% buckets. So all the cards I'm going to mention are only played by, at most, 5% of all the cubes on Cube Cobra, which is not a lot. So the, the way that this feature works on Cube Cobra is uh, if you go to the list view and choose table view, this is my one gripe with Cube Cobra. <laughs> is your, that Your one gripe? I mean, I love Cube Cobra, but I have a, a long list of gripes. I'm going to just stick with this one. Okay. Uh, the thing that is clearly a list uh, is called the table view, and the thing that is 100% a table is called the list view. But That one does seem like an easy fix. Have you made this suggestion on their Discord? I, I have, yes. You were met with It's low priority. I, I will admit it is not a high priority issue. Uh, but anyway, if you go to the table view, uh, which shows a list of cards, uh, you can then go to sort and choose for your primary sort popularity, and then it'll put all your cards into buckets, into columns based on 0 to 1%, 1 to 2, and so forth. It's not a linear scale, so you get a lot more definition for the much less popular cards. And so looking at Andy's Cube, you're right that it is less extreme than I remembered when I looked at it the other day. The bulk of the cards are, you know, the, the tallest column is in the 12 to 20 percent. Uh, right. And 42 cards fall in this biggest 30 to 50 percent of cubes run those cards. And we have to remember that, you know, this is all of the cubes on Cube Cobra. So this is all the pauper cubes, all the peasant cubes, all the Innistrad set cubes, a lot of cubes that are running restrictions. The one that, life cubes, the one drop cubes. The one life cubes, the one drop cubes, a lot of cubes with restrictions that would preclude them from running any of these cards in the first place. Now, I did choose specifically cards that I think have applications across many cubes that I find in the unpopular section of uh, my table here. And just right off the top, first one I'm going to talk about here is Portent. This is a one-mana sorcery in blue that basically is Ponder, but it has two differences. One difference is you can target your opponent instead of you. So you can say, I'm going to look at the top three cards of your library, put them in any order, or make you shuffle. And then the other difference is that you don't draw the card immediately. You draw it on the next turn's upkeep. It's a really interesting design decision. <laughs> yeah, this the whole slow trip thing, which they have thankfully moved away from, but was very popular during like Ice Age and this sort of era. And I imagine, I don't actually know the story behind this, but I'm guessing there was a lot of broken, stormy combo-y decks that were abusing cantrips. And their solution at first was instead of rebalancing cantrips, was just to say, well, let's just slow them down because maybe drawing a card immediately is too powerful. Right, it's kind of an interesting feature of magic. If you look at the history of cards... A lot of the design space is, how do we make cards just a little bit worse? Portent is a common, and it, like I said, it's very similar to Ponder. I think pound for pound, it is a little worse than Ponder, and Ponder is among the, the, the hallowed ground of what many people will call a cube staple. Ponder played across lots of different cubes, lots of different power levels, lots of different restrictions, because it's a powerful cantrip. For a long time, I was off Portent. I didn't want to play it because of that slow trip nature. And the things that turn me around on it are, number one, 
targeting your opponent with this is very relevant. It comes up more often than I expected. Where Really? Yeah, where you're just ahead on board. You, you want the game state to stay the way it is. And in that situation, oftentimes I think the best move is just to see what your opponent's next draws are, possibly nerf them. Even just seeing two lands and a spell and just putting the spell on bottom like delays things by a lot of turns before stuff's going to happen. So that mode is more relevant than I expected it to be. But the bigger difference in how this card is played out relative to my expectations is that the slow trip, the fact that you don't draw that card till the next turn's upkeep, has barely mattered. And I say that because in blue, at least in my cube, a lot of the things I'm doing in blue are at instant speed. They're counterspell, stuff like that. Oh, that's a great point. And what you get to do with Portent is you Portent on your turn, you draw the card on the next turn's upkeep, which is your opponent's upkeep. So before they're going to get any main phase, any ability to cast spells at sorcery speed, you will have already drawn that card off Portent, in which case it is a strictly better ponder. Like if we're talking about a card that you're never going to spend mana on your main phase, then you'd much rather have this over ponder because it's ponder, but it gives you flexibility of targeting your opponent if you want. That's interesting. So yeah, in general, like uh, the context is going to matter, but if your blue decks are more reactive than proactive, that cost is actually very low. Right. And even in the more proactive decks, because the other situation where Portent is almost exactly the same as Ponder, is if you cast it on the first couple turns of the game. If you just cast it on turn one because you want to smooth out your draw, you were never going to spend your mana doing anything else anyway before that card was going to be drawn, right? You're going to play your land, you're going to play Portent, you're going to draw a card. You weren't going to do something with no mana, no lands up on your turn after casting Portent. Right. It really matters and takes a hit in environments where you're trying to, you know, set up one big turn late in the game or do, you know, uh, get benefit out of casting many spells in one turn. Yeah, I mean, where it is weaker is this, like, middle portion of the game or if you're behind and you're just, like, draw it off the top of your deck in your hellbent and you just want to draw some action. It, it, It does suffer there, but... I've been perfectly happy with it in my more proactive decks, say like a blue-red Spellslingery deck, because it's another one-mana cantrip, which is just great for those decks. It's one mana to trigger your young Pyromancer. It's easy to flashback with Dreadheart Arcanist. It's got a lot of synergy. And again, that downside in more controlling decks has been very minimal. So honestly, I've been really impressed with it. The times where I feel like the slow trip of it has mattered have been vanishingly small, like a very, very small percentage of the time that I've cast this have I really felt the fact that it's a slow trip. And if you haven't played with it, I would suggest you give it a shot because I avoided it for a long time because I was so pathologically afraid of that slow trip nature, but I've been very happy with it. So that's a common. That's a card that Popper Cubes can run, Peasant Cubes can run, Unrestricted Cubes can run. I think if you like those other cantrips and you want another one that is different, because it is different, and it's, that's the other thing, is it's not just... I know some people don't like running opt-in serum visions and sleight of hand alongside ponder and preordain because it just feels worse than ponder or preordain this card is different it does a different thing there are times you're going to want to target your opponent and it's cool to have that flexibility so i think this is a, a underrepresented cantrip across the pantheon of available options all right what do you have next next up is a card like i said i tried to pick out cards that i thought were playable in lots of different cubes of different power levels different restrictions the next one doesn't really meet that restriction so much but it has to be mentioned Primordial Mist is an enchantment from a commander product some time ago. It is four and a blue, and it says on your end step, you manifest the top card of your library. So you put it face down as a 2-2, and it also has the ability you can exile a face down card you own and play it this turn. So it basically makes 2-2s every turn on your end step, and instead of keeping that card in play as a 2-2, if you want to just draw it, you can just draw it. And this is only being played by 1-2% to of cube curators, so a very, very small portion of people are, are playing with this card. I say this card does not apply to many cubes because it is extraordinarily powerful. <laughs> this card is really, really good. So if you are playing any kind of power max strategy, I think you should be considering this. Obviously, it's not for pauper or peasant cubers. It is a rare. And it is not for people that are playing at a lower power level, I don't think. I mean, this was in Day's Cube for a long time. And Day's Cube, I would say, was similar in power level to your cube. And it 
constantly just wrecked face there. It was it was kind of it unbeatable. Was, yeah, it was a bomb. It was just a pack rat. The other thing I'll say about this card is I just really I love the play patterns of it. Like power level aside, I think this option of as a baseline making a two two every turn and that upside of being able to draw those cards when you want also comes up all the time. You know, you're playing a blue base control deck hypothetically, being able to make those two twos and then when you board wipe just draw all those cards. You just draw them all. They just turn into cards in your hand instead of creatures on board that get killed by a board wipe. Or you, you know, chump block your opponent's worm coil engine and exile that card so they don't get to gain any life. Or Yeah, I was going to say, that that was my uh, exact favorite moment with this card was when I was in a race with my opponent. I was attacking them in the air, but they had a batter skull and I just got to use this to prevent them from gaining life and actually win the game that way. Yeah, even more at the highest echelons of power, it's incredible with balance. It's an enchantment. So it doesn't oh, yeah. get counted by balance, and then you can turn all your creatures into cards in exile that you can cast. They're not in your hand, they're not in play, they're in a zone that balance does not see and does not count. Those options come up, and it's like a perfect example of a flexible card that gives you lots of options and how it plays out, that you always have some kind of out to play to, which I found really satisfying. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just a, a very difficult to interact with Planeswalker. That is one way to think about it. You get to draw another card a turn, that card's always a free 2-2 unless you just want to draw it, and that's a very powerful mode. Yeah, that's an interesting way to frame it. Yeah, I mean, this card is... is insane i feel like it is definitely underrated in terms of power level it's really interesting when i look at this whole list again i've got you know the cards on the left of the screen are clearly like lower powered cards and cards on the right are higher powered cards like generally that is such a a huge motivator of how most most people design their cubes that we really clearly sort of see that scale laid out in this list but there are a couple exceptions and i think that this is one of the biggest one that i I notice all these cards from supplementary sets end up getting bumped down the list a, a good deal for sure which is a little bit surprising to me. I don't know if they just don't have the same circulation, they just don't have the same visibility, or if people are actively avoiding them. Someone even mentioned on a stream the other day we were doing that they were a little surprised to see Nesting Dragon because they weren't so interested in cards from supplementary sets. So maybe there is some active avoidance of those. I think the biggest factor, I mean, all those things are factors, I think. I honestly think the biggest factor is that so many people use their experience from other formats to dictate which cards they want to put That's, in their cube. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you hear about cards that are played in standard that are good enough to make standard decks that standard decks are built around. You see cards in retail drafts that are powerful that you like. And unless a card from a commander product becomes played heavily in commander, which Primordial Mist and Nesting Dragon are not bombs in commander, like they're in commander products, but they are not actually great cards in those formats. I would be surprised if they were very popular in commander decks. Totally. People just don't have any experience playing with them. They don't know how to evaluate them. I think we saw this with Ethereal Forager from the most recent Commander product. Or not most recent. There's been so many Commander products. But from a a recent Commander product, Ethereal Forager is a card that I think a lot of cube designers overlooked at first and then have come around on. So I think that's a very common trope is people overlooking these cards. I think the biggest reason is just they don't see them as much. Right. And the other big effect that I noticed immediately is just the things that are on the lower end of the, the popularity spectrum are uh, just cards from newer sets that people just haven't added to as many cubes yet. Yeah, that is true. I'm, I'm kind of ignoring those, except for this Ness example, which is from a somewhat recent set, but I still think it's underrepresented in the overall population. I'm talking about Blood Sky Berserker. One in a black for a 1-1 one, one human berserker. When you cast your second spell each turn, put two plus one plus one counters on Blood Sky Berserker and it gains menace until end of turn like Primordial Mist, only played in 1-2% to 2% of cubes. Now, like you mentioned, Anthony, part of this is that Call of Time is a relatively new set. There is a peak on that graph on how popular any Call of Time cards are going to be, just because when you look at all of Cube Cobra, there are some no longer maintained lists. There are some people that just don't update their cubes immediately. They update them you know, every six months or every year or something, and so really new cards are always going to be a little bit lower. 
But there are plenty of Kaldheim cards that are much higher up than 1-2%, to even amongst cards from that set. Bloodsky Berserker is making kind of a pitiful showing. And I got to say, this is a card that was in a sort of grouping in my head with Clarion Spirit, because it triggers on the same condition, which is casting your second spell each turn, and it's also a 2-drop. Clarion Spirit is 1 and a white for the 2-2, that makes a 1-1 flying spirit whenever you cast your second spell each turn. And when I put them both in the cube list for Kaldheim testing, my take was... Parker actually sent in a hot take to our set review episode where he said, these cards are great, and the reason they're great is that you want your players to be multi-spelling anyway. That's already a powerful thing to do. So you're rewarding your players for doing a powerful thing by giving them even more payoff, and that's just naturally a good play pattern. It's going to result in powerful cards. My hot take for Kaldheim is that Clarion Spirit and Blood Sky Berserker are the best two uncommons in the set. These are the spells that reward players for playing two spells in one turn, and I've learned that double spelling, even in cube, and especially in Timbo forward cubes like my own, double spelling matters a lot, and it plays much better than it reads. So I expect these cards to overperform because they reward players simply for playing good, clean, fair magic, things that are already good, and these cards reward that. And so I added them both, and at the time I was like, Clarion Spirit seems great. I really love making flowers in white. That one seems like it's going to stick around for a while. Blood Sky Berserker, I was a little more lukewarm on. I was not as sure about. Having played them both now, I am convinced that Blood Sky Berserker is a lot better than Clarion Spirit. Obviously, the power of these cards is contingent upon your ability to multi-spell. And in my cube, I do support Black Aggro. So if you don't have Black Aggro, you're probably not going to care about Blood Sky Berserker. But if you do have any kind of proactive black deck with a low curve, it's not too hard to multi-spell there. Serve on any harder than it is in white. And just like... Clarion Spirit, I think this card does get a little better when paired with blue for one mana cantrips that they can draw you more cheap cards and you can double spell more often. Here's why I think it's better. A 1-1 flyer is probably in a vacuum a better payoff than two plus one plus one counters and menace. But how this actually plays out in reality is that oftentimes you end up in a state where your opponent has a Blood Sky Berserker with two or four counters on it and you're just saying, well, if they cast two spells next turn, I just lose. And that's why I think Blood Sky Berserker ends up being more powerful is that Triggering Clarion Spirit one or two times is good. It's good value, but it rarely ends the game. And oftentimes making a 5-5 Menace, a 7-7 Menace just ends the game on the spot. I've had this thing as big as a 9-9. It really, really impresses me and I think is probably one of the best proactive two drops in a black aggro deck. Probably right behind something like Dark Confidant. I get so tilted by this card, though, because if you look at it, if you look at the illustration, it, it looks menacing all the time. And it doesn't have menace all the time. I see what you did there. I do kind of wish it had menace all the time. I think it'd be a little bit cleaner. But unlike Fearless Fledgling, <laughs> which we talked about a couple episodes ago, I'm not as bothered by that as, uh, as I am with the Fledgling. You've played against this card a lot. Do you also agree that this card is overperformed? I'm honestly still not confident where it lies in terms of power level. The card is strong, but it does take a little bit of setup. But as far as play patterns, I actually really like the cast two spells a turn mechanic, just because it yeah. it asks you to do a little bit of work to sort of sequence your plays and your turns, but not that much. It's it's like the yeah. right amount of, of, of opportunity for uh, strategic thinking, I think. And there are a lot of cards that I think people might not in their head have shortcutted to two spells a turn that actually are two spells a turn. So for example, like any cheap adventure card, that's just two spells with you right there, right? You draw your Order of Midnight, you cast it to buy something back, you cast Order of Midnight, that triggers your Blood Sky Berserker. So there's oftentimes two spells just happens when you don't really expect it to. It's not like you have to right. be playing a Xerox deck for this to be good. I think you can oftentimes sequence your plays to get triggers on this thing. 
And since you trigger it once, two mana three three with menace for at least one attack is great. A second time, and it's an absurd rate. And I've had a lot of games that have basically ended because my opponent was like, "Well, I hope you don't draw a spell because you will kill me." Totally. And, I did. and you can't counter the ability easily either. If you counter the spell, the ability right, still yeah, results. countering the spell does does not matter. So it. It dies to removal, but a, a two-drop that eventually ends the game unless it's answered with removal is something I am really happy to have in all of my aggressive decks. It also gives like form of reach, being able to make a giant creature that can continue to brawl with mid-range threats and continue to put pressure on even as the game gets to the later turns of the game is a great thing for aggro. I wonder if another reason people might be less interested in it is if it looks like it's sort of in this category of cards that uh, people would describe as cute, where it's like it asks you to do this specific I mean, thing and it not, gets counters. I wouldn't and... call him cute. He's not ugly but you know <laughs> not my type really but sorry do you, do you, I, I derailed your reasonable comment with the with the bad joke it was worth it um but do you know what i mean where a lot of people like will will not be as excited i mean i feel like you very much are also not excited in like uh the the sort of narrow set mechanics which this feels like a, a pretty clear expression of i don't know this to me seems like a pretty generic good stuff card i guess you're saying some people might look at this and think oh this is a puzzle puzzle oh, I'm, counter yeah, I'm matters card puzzle, like, puzzle i'm not playing so. scales so i'm not going to play this card right right yeah, I mean, I guess if you are reading it that way, I would just encourage you not to because it does not need any kind of other synergy other than casting spells, which is what most proactive decks want to be doing in any environment for this card to be good. Let's get these numbers up. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could come back in like four weeks and see that these numbers had gone up substantially? I would feel so powerful. I think we'd get there. <laughs> I would feel so powerful. This next card, Anthony, is I think the only card that you and I both include in our primary cubes. It's a card I think is woefully underplayed. Ulcerate, only played in 3-5% to 5 of cubes. This Ooh. is one black mana for an instant. Target creature gets minus 3, minus 3, and you lose 3 life. Here's the first thing I'll say about this card. It really showcases how messed up Lightning Bolt is, because Lightning Bolt is so much better than Ulcerate. True, but Ulcerate's still quite strong. Oh, it's so good. Lightning Bolt is a really high bar, and, you know, I, I'm high on disfigure variants, and once you get up to killing things with 3 toughness, at least in my environment, you're killing almost anything, aside from very few high curve things like your Merc Tide Regents and whatnot. You're killing a lot of stuff. So one mana, instant speed, removal. And honestly, I found it very relevant. If you're on the full suite of Adanto Vanguard, Seasoned Hallow Blade, other kinds of indestructibly threats, yourself with spirits, I found it to be very relevant that this thing decreases toughness rather than just deals damage or destroys something equal to its power or toughness. It's extremely relevant in this cube. The last time I played a proactive white deck in this cube, I felt like all those cards just didn't work because my opponent had so much removal that answered it in that yeah, way. Yeah, it can't happen. And that is a place where it is better than Lightning Bolt. This is why we don't say dumb things like strictly better or strictly worse. This is worse <laughs> than Lightning Bolt most of the time, but when your opponent has a seasoned Hallow Blade, you're going to rather have an Ulcerate. I, I just love it's, you know, it's very simple. It's efficient. I'm definitely playing at a much lower power level, but I think there's still plenty of space for efficient cards at a low power level and gives you a lot of flexibility in the way you sequence your turns. But this has a real cost. It has limitations. And I think that just leads to really good gameplay. Yeah, I think it's probably better if you're specifically trying to support aggressive black decks in your queue because probably. the life cost is not as much like, you know, if I ulcerate your, your cheap creature, I'm still taking a bunch of damage. So it might be good in the long run. You're still probably going to include it in slower controlling decks. Yeah, I'll happily play in any control deck. I will not cut it from the control list. In an aggressive deck, especially, just being able yeah. to remove blockers and use your life as a resource is extremely powerful. Yeah, and I would say the most common things in my cube that have three toughness over two are tokens from Green Planeswalkers, Beast Tokens, Forest from Nissa Who Shakes the World, and being able to ulcerate one of those things, attack and kill that Planeswalker is very relevant. Do you think people are afraid of that life loss? Probably, yeah. Okay. I'd, be, I'd be curious to look sort of more broadly at things that cost life. I mean, people do love Shocklands. 
but maybe there is overall. I think something... people love natural duels more though on pound for pound. Like I like Shocklands for their play patterns. Mm-hmm. I think most people, if uh, money were no issue, would rather have natural duels. That's so hard for me to empathize with. I don't think you should be afraid of this life loss. And it may be like, if, if you need to, think about a Shockland, think about a, a Gitaxian Probe, which you'll happily pay two life for. Three life is not the end of the world. Your life is a resource. And getting a threat off the board at instant speed for one mana is very powerful. I think this card has a home in lots of cubes, way more cubes than we're seeing represented by these numbers. It isn't uncommon, so peasant cubes can play this card. It's great. I recommend it to everybody. In a somewhat similar vein, I've grouped my next two cards... We're talking about red removal spells now, and I want to talk about Tarfire and Seal of Fire. These are both shock variants, which is to say for one red mana, you get two damage to any target. Tarfire's unique take on it is that it is a tribal instant. It is a, it is a goblin. The actual spell is a goblin. And Seal of Fire's take on it is that it's a enchantment. You play at sorcery speed, because it doesn't have flash, but then you can sacrifice it at any point later to deal two damage to something. Now, you listening probably have a good sense of how good shocks are in your cube i would say overall people underrate shocks i think one mana for two damage is very very good i think in almost all environments it's better than a lightning strike two mana for three damage it takes a really really slow environment before i'm happy to play lightning strike over shock and i see more lightning strike variants in cubes than shock variants so as a baseline i think people should rate two damage for one mana pretty highly now, you were Lightning Strike in your main cube. Do you have any Shock variants in the regular cube? I do. I have a Shock itself. You have regular Shock. How do you think Shock and Lightning Strike compare on power level in your cube? I think they're actually pretty similar in my cube because the, it is slower. There are bigger threats, but I think you're totally right. As soon as you get a little bit more aggressive, Shock becomes much more relevant. Yeah. Using all your mana is so important in really any kind of deck. Being able to counter something and then also Shock something on end step or you know Shock something on the first turn of the game so you don't take any more damage. It... It really adds up. So I have a Spirit of Singleton rule in my cube where I really, really try and avoid cards that I think are functionally almost always worse than other cards. So you don't ever want to see Lightning Bolt and Lightning Strike in the same pack. That bumps say, me like, out that's so just much. Not a pick as far as that, those particular <laughs> oh, cards. But exactly. So it, like, there's really no situation. I mean, we could think of very fringe situations like Counter Target, One Mana Spell, Mental Mist, that better against uh, Lightning Bolt than Lightning Strike. But except for really fringe bend over backwards kind of examples you just always want lightning bolt over lightning strike and i don't like that dynamic in a draft portion where i have cards that are just always better than other cards with very very few exceptions i think your position on this is extreme but that's what your cube is for it's for i don't think it's that extreme anyway i I run a million one man blue cantrips and i'll justify to end of time how they're all slightly different and sometimes you actually do want sleight of hand (laughs) instead of ponder you want a goblin like what if one card on top of your deck is really good and one's really bad then you want (laughs) sleight of hand over ponder like it happens sometimes here's my argument for tar fire and seal of fire tar fire first of all one to two percent of cubes playing it almost nobody seal of fire slightly more three to five percent of cubes playing it these are generally worse than lightning bolt i will acknowledge that but there are definitely circumstances and decks where I would rather have one of these over Lightning Bolt. One of the big contributors is the new Delirium cards we have in red. So Tarfire, its unique take is that it is a tribal instant. It's a goblin card. Tribal is a card type, just like sorcery, planeswalker, creature, land. It is on that level. It is not a subtype like uh, soldier. It is not a super type like legendary. And because it is a card type, it contributes to Delirium, and we now have Dragon's Rage Channeler and Unholy Heat, among other Delirium cards that you could be running in your cube. But if you're playing at that sort of power max level, I think you should be considering those cards. 
and we're seeing this make waves in constructed formats as well. This counts as two counts towards your delirium. It's a tribal card and it's an instant card. So it's a really good way to up your delirium count and I think comes up fairly often. I'm also on Tarmogoyf now. And so if you're on a card like Tarmogoyf that counts card types in your graveyard, it just is relevant for those reasons. So that's Tarfire's thing. Seal of Fire I've been on for a little while longer and I think is more justifiable in the Spirit of Singleton difference because even without any kind of cute synergies, its play patterns are different. You get to spend one mana at any point in the game, whenever you have one mana available, to basically put this little tripwire, this little bomb into play that you can use whenever you need to. And while you're giving up the instant speed ability to, you know, kill something in response to an equip or in response to an aura or, you know, blow somebody out in combat because this is an onboard trick, you are gaining mana efficiency. You get to play this thing whenever you need to, whenever it's convenient for you, and then use it later on whenever it's convenient to you, which I think is very interesting and compelling. It's also an enchantment that sacrifices itself. So again, with regards to the delirium and other sort of card type matters, things in the graveyard really helps there, especially if you're trying to make something like Dragon's Rage Channel or Unholy Heat really shine in mono red. I think these red cards that contribute to those types of the graveyard are great. The other thing with Seal of Fire, if you're on Luris, I think that's a real combo that is deserving of attention. If I'm in a red-black Luris deck and I'm late in pack three, I might take Seal of Fire over Lightning Bolt, depending what the rest of my memorable looks like, because in certain matchups, being able to loop that Seal of Fire with Luris is quite powerful. That's really uh, goes to show how bonkers the companion mechanic is and the fact that, you know, if, if Luris was just in your main deck, I don't think you would ever make that choice. But exactly. the fact that you always have access to it really lets you warp your draft. Yeah, exactly. It, that's a very good point. Because I've said many times in this show that I don't like picking two cards from my deck and my 40 card deck. I'm going to draw together some small percentage of the time to have some weird synergy. Luris breaks that heuristic wide open by just saying, you can always have access to me if you want. Right, so it's just drawing the one card. Not so if you draw cards. that Seal of Fire, then you get to put that combo together if you want to, and you have time to do so. So that's my defense for these two burn spells, these two shock variants with interesting types and interesting play patterns. I think Seal of Fire, it's a little more popular. Seal of Fire is the more justifiable one. Tarfire is a little cute, I will admit. It's just shock that's more complicated and has very fringe applications where it could potentially be better. But that satisfies my little picky Spirit of Singleton peculiarity. I think there's some very good arguments against both of these cards. I think that Hit me. in this particular environment, and definitely in, in more, I think you're definitely starting to support these interactions more. But in a lot of cubes, that upside is so marginal, it doesn't feel like a choice that you're actually making. It just seems like sort of a gotcha that's ever every once in a while going to come up. Or like you block a Tarmogoyf and then your opponent's like, yeah, it's bigger than you thought it was. So well, I don't okay. know. In that case, you should be able to... You ask your opponent how big the Tarmogoyf is. You don't, and when someone asks you, <laughs> Block, you say, you answer, it? you don't say, figure it out for yourself. I don't know. Can you figure it out from this tar fire? I don't know. Have you met some Magic players? No, Magic players are good people. But I think that the, those can sort of just trip you up and confuse you and maybe even be... I feel like we've switched roles here. This is like, I feel I know, like this is the thing you would always be defending and I'd be the one saying, it's so dumb that my tar fire pumps my Tarmogoyf by two instead of one, but a stupid interaction. You know, maybe at the end of the day, it's just about, are you, uh, does it spark joy for you? <laughs> So these don't spark joy for you? Not especially. And I also think that the we were talking about like comprehension complexity last week, and I, th I think that Tarfire can legitimately be pretty confusing. Uh, like I, I like to go back to the issues that Devoid had in, uh, was that Battle for Zendikar? Uh, and Oath of the Gatewatch. Oath of the Gatewatch. Right. Um, where it was like this A-B mechanic, but the A literally did nothing. It was just like a signifier to say this card is devoid and some other cards will care about it. So players that were new would be like, why is this card why say is devoid? Because it was right. actually in the rules text box. Right. 
Exactly. Which I don't think it is on Tarfire. Let me see. Uh, it's not in the rules text box, but it still is, you know, just as tribal text, instinct goblin uh, that I think can throw, throw people off. So it's not a huge issue, but these are, you know, small negatives if you're doing your pros cons list uh, to consider. They are both commons, though. So again, any rarity restriction can play these cards. And I, I would argue just on a baseline, if you want red proactive decks to be better, just more shock variants is going to make your red decks better. So even if they're weird fringe ones, even if you don't have the delirium stuff or the card types matter in the graveyard stuff, just more of these cheap damage anywhere is is really good seal of fire actually have bigger issues with which is just that i actually really don't love on board tricks just the feeling of you saying, and alex have to have a big fight about this because alex has written a whole article about the beauty of seal of removal and how great it is all right i'll i'll, I'll be ready for that battle i'll prepare my notes alex um, is gonna be visiting us sometime this summer maybe we'll get him on tape and you guys can have a big fight all right let's do it you know like a friendly fight but but obviously the big issue is just you know it's there you have to play into it and just knowing well I'm gonna equip this once and I know my opponent's gonna use it is it's just not a great feeling. Is it a better feeling than not knowing it's there and having it happen to you? Oh definitely. I've read Alex's article and I'm not gonna spoil it, but I think ultimately what an onboard trick does is change the question from does my opponent have it to will they use it and I think that I, can see that. I think that question gives you a lot more insight into what your opponent is trying to accomplish than the other one does. Like if I have shock and you go to equip your expensive equip cost equipment to a creature, if I have it, I'm going to shock it, right? There's no question, but there is a question of, am I going to use my onboard trick now to do it? Because you know about it, which changes your decisions about whether to equip or not. Like I know I've got you because you didn't know about my in-hand shock, but if it's on board and you go to equip, now are you trying to bait me into something else that you're trying to protect from the onboard trick? Who knows? These are compelling examples. All right. I'm going to let Alex defend that more so than me because I don't want to steal his points. Next up is the key image for my cube on Cube Cobra. Beautiful art, fabulous card, Edge of Autumn. This is only played by 3 to 5% of cube curators. It is a rampant growth variant. The differences are that it only functions if you control four or fewer lands. So if you're on five, six, seven lands, it doesn't get a land. You can't cast it. I mean, you, you can cast it. It doesn't do anything. It just resolves and nothing happens. But for that downside, you trade the upside of cycling, sacrifice a land. Anthony, I think this is much better than rampant growth. Do you agree? Wow, hot takes. As always, context matters. But in an environment context where... Context is irrelevant. This card is better than rampant growth. <laughs> in, especially in an environment where your goal is not ramping to eight mana, but just getting an early four drop and then not having a dead card later in the game. The card is extremely powerful. It's interesting between this and Ulcerate, it seems like a lot of these cards that are not played as much have weird downsides. That I, Here I would definitely say people are afraid yeah. of that downside. People are afraid of the perceived downside of, I have to sacrifice a land. I don't want to lose my lands. First of all, you don't have to cycle it. I agree. If you're trying to ramp to eight, part of me doesn't think that Rampart Groves are any good at that anyway. <laughs> like, I, I'm not happy trying to ramp to eight on the back of Rampant Groves and stuff. But if you cast a Rampant Growth, then next turn you can cast a Sky Shroud Claim. It, honestly, it is like, I am low on Cultivate, Sky Shroud Claim, expensive ramp spells in most cubes. But if you are trying to get to eight every game, that's the kind of spell I want. I want like a two for one ramp spell that gets me two lands instead of just one land a little bit early. Because... You're not going to get to eight that early on rampant growths, right? I mean, I guess we could do the math. You could cast one on turn two, another on two more on turn four. At what point are you out of cards in hand before you get to all of your land drops? Even in a situation where you are trying to get to six, seven mana, being able to cycle this was likely going to draw you another land or some other kind of ramp spell. Like, it's not the end of the world. Rampant growth is at its best on turn two. That's when you are getting the most out of rampant growth. 
Rampant growth, I think, in almost all environments, is a dead draw late in the game. Right. It's terrible. So if you were already just going to draw your rampant growth at a time where it's useless, the option that you may not take, but that you have more flexibility to, to cycle it, is it's just gravy. Yeah. And it seems obvious, but I think it's worth saying, you could obviously sacrifice a tapped land. You can tap that land and float mana before you sacrifice this thing. So the turn you're drawing an extra card off of your edge of autumn, you're not even down to mana. You're still even on mana. You get free cycling on this card, free in terms of, of mana, the turn you draw it late in the game and are stuck top decking and need more action. Yeah, I'm I'm loath to say people should be playing cards more. I people don't want to be playing really tell more. people how to build their cubes, but I agree that I think people will have more fun with this card than they think. As soon as you draw it the first time and you're like, oh man, I, I, I needed another threat. I needed action. I needed something to do at this point in the game and then realize, oh, I actually you know have six lands in play. I can just go ahead and cycle this. It's, it's a, such a more fun play experience than I would have expected just reading the card. It's great. It feels fabulous to cast. feels fabulous to cycle. The art is fabulous. It's a common. I think people should be on this card. I don't like to be prescriptive either, but where I can be prescriptive is I know that way more people play Rampant Growth. And I think a lot of those people, unless one of your considerations is like, I want my cards to be as mechanically simple as possible. That's the only way, to me, this is worse than Rampant Growth in 99% of environments. It has more text on it. So if you're worried about confusing new players with mechanics like cycling, then sure, maybe avoid it. But... Otherwise, I think his card is woefully underrated. I, I don't think there's a single cube designer that would ever avoid cycling. Cycling is the the favorite mechanic. It's a really good one. I you know <laughs> I don't like to be dogmatic, but I think you might be right. I've never met a cube designer if it's like cycling. Ugh. If you dislike cycling, let us know. Yeah, send us your and cycling. We'll, we'll, we'll embarrass you we'll on do, the podcast. We'll do, we'll do a new segment called Cycling Hate Mail. I, I would love to hear some cycling hate mail. We'll put you in the salt box. Make it as colorful as you possibly can. I want to do a little follow up. I did find out in researching the show notes for our past show. Salt boxes, literally only a Baltimore thing. I think Wild. I said it was probably every northeastern city that gets snow. Just Baltimore. It's a whole thing. You're learning by listening to the show. It's educational program. <laughs> Very important knowledge. One more green card here. Oath of Nyssa. This is a single green mana for a legendary enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, you look at the top three cards of your library. You may reveal a creature, land, or planeswalker card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. And it has the static ability, you may spend mana as though or mana of any color to cast Planeswalker spells. This card I'm not going to mount a super hard defense of because there are a few things I don't like right out of the gate. I don't like it can whiff. I hate things like this that can whiff. And this one is really unlikely to whiff. I think I've ever seen it whiff like once where you revealed like Edge of Autumn and Pest Infestation and some other instant or sorcery you play in your green deck. It almost never whiffs, but it can whiff. And it does also have this text, which I think came up in a game of ours actually somewhat recently, where you forgot about that static ability. You forgot that it had Planeswalker yeah. spells can be cast with any color and played differently than you would have if you remember that line was there. It's a lot to remember. It does have those downsides. The upsides are, I think this is one of Green's best cantrips. Up there with Once Upon a Time, up there now with Abundant Growth. Really powerful to get to look at the top three cards, take the one you want. Again, type restricted, but type restricted to types that you're probably running a lot of. I wouldn't include this in a cube without Planeswalkers, without a decent density of them. Not because it gets that much worse, because it's not that those Planeswalkers in your green deck... The Planeswalkers in green decks probably replace what would be creatures in terms of their role in the game. So uh, it's not like you're having less hits if you don't have Planeswalkers in your cube. But I would not want that extra static ability if it was not relevant ever because it didn't have any Planeswalkers in the environment. Yeah, it's a lot of noise. If somebody's looking at this card and saying, okay, well, this is a... Planeswalker. Yeah, it's my Super Friends card. card. It's my yeah. Super Friends deck. And I, I don't like those aspects of it. But on the other side, great cantrip. And that static ability, I think, is really good. Basically, when I'm building my deck, you can basically count it as a, a five-color source for Planeswalker spells, which seems like it wouldn't come up that often. But 
I find that Planeswalkers are often the things I want to be splashing a little bit into. Like, I'll want to play an Ashiok in my blue-green deck, or I want to play a Teferi in my white-green deck or something. And having an Oath of Nyssa be your sixth or seventh source of your fixing color makes a huge difference. So Totally. Yeah, I actually, despite, you know, later in the game forgetting about it, but while I was building the deck in that particular match we streamed, I think, it would it, I thought about it exactly in that way. It's not, right. it's, I can't just imagine I always have this so I can just take whatever Planeswalkers of any color that I want, uh, but just thinking about, of it as one more colored source for each of those colors I was trying to splash uh, made a big difference. Yeah, exactly. It lets you play your Doretti Ingenious Iconoclast and your Gruul deck. It, it really helps in those regards. It comes up more often than you would think. People have called it Green Ponder. It's really not too far off. It's basically Green Ponder with a free extra fixing source for all your Planeswalker spells. So this is 3 to 5% of people too. I'm not going to ride this one too hard because it does have downsides. And I think a lot of people out there don't like Planeswalkers and certainly don't like indicating there would be anything suggesting a Planeswalker deck. So I understand that. But if you're not worried about those things or you are on Planeswalkers, Oath of Nyssa, it's a great card. Chase the Mind Sculptor only in the 12 to 20% category. I think a lot of people think Jace is too good. I think hmm. they're wrong. But I think a lot of people think he's too good. I want to poke around at, at what is what are the most popular Planeswalkers and try and get a sense of how big this contingent of people that are actually uh, actively avoiding Planeswalkers is. That's a is. great question. All right, we got two cards left. One gold card and one land. The gold card is Fire Covenant. Now, this card is one red-black for an instant, and as an additional cost to cast this spell, you pay X life. And Fire Covenant deals X damage divided as you choose among any number of target creatures. More life payment. I think people are really afraid of using their life as a resource. I really do. I think they look at this and they think, well, what if I only have four life left? Then this card does nothing. And yeah, that's They're true. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. But I think they are wrong to think about how often that comes up and the upside of when you get to cast this card and kill some stuff. It's not too much of an exaggeration to call this a Plague Wind for three mana at instant speed. This very often will kill anything you want of your opponents that you need to kill. It's rare that you have a creature who's on board who is not worth its toughness in life to you to get rid of. This kind of goes back to ulcerate, right? Like, you ulcerate something, you're going to lose three life. Worse than if you didn't lose three life, but how much damage was that thing with three toughness going to do to you over the course of the next couple turns if you did not ulcerate it? Fire Covenant is kind of similar. It's kind of just like three ulcerates taped together. I feel like it's, especially... it's any number of ulcerates taped together, and you get to deal the precise... One of the worst... Here's the thing. I defended Ulcerate, and I'll keep defending it. One of the things feels really bad about it is when you have to Ulcerate a one-toughness creature, and you're like, ugh, I mean, I gotta get that thing off board, but... You're like, you're like, three... How about one life? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is... Especially in a lot of cubes that support extremely aggressive strategies, those creatures often have low toughness, so being able to spread and, like, precisely pinpoint those, it can easily kill three creatures and yeah. totally turn a game around. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great card in a control deck, in my opinion. It's a fabulous card in any kind of red-black aggressive deck because if you don't care about your life because you're the proactive deck, just pay 12. Kill their entire board of tokens from their Planeswalkers. Doesn't matter. Swinging for lethal. It's very powerful. This is this is kind of like Primordial Mist in that I had to include it because I think 3 to 5% is woefully low for this card, but I think it's very powerful and it's not going to get played by Rarity Restricted Cubes. Though it might be an uncommon, actually, because it is from Ice Age. They have probably had some weird uncommons back then. The old one has really awful art, but there's a new Mystical Archive with really sick art, so maybe that was keeping you from playing it. It looked like a weird old card you didn't want to include. Now you have a cool version you can include. It's very powerful. It's instant speed, too. Like I think people overlook that as well sometimes, that you can do this at instant speed. It's kind of a blowout. 
There are some big knocks against this card, though. I think that some players might, or some cube designers might actively be trying to avoid those kinds of cards, which have the potential to be a dead draw elite. It also is a gold card. I know a lot of cube designers try and minimize the number of gold cards they include. And yeah, some players could just be uh, afraid of the life cost or actually actively trying to support aggressive decks more. And this, this could just be overpowered in those contexts. That's true. It's possible people are not playing this because it's too good. From the conversations I've had, I don't think that's the case. I think most people don't know it exists, don't actually think it's any good, or afraid of the life loss. So if you're in that category, then I suggest trying it out. I'll also just, we talked about Ulcerate, we talked about Fire Covenant. I'll throw a little vote in here just for using your life as a resource, not as a player, as a cube designer, putting more cards in your cube that cost life because short games are more fun than long games, Anthony. It's, I think it's just a fact. The most insufferable, terrible games we've all played in Magic have been ones that have just dragged out forever where we had this chance to win. We were playing to our outs. Our opponent was doing the same thing, but we weren't really making decisions. just dragged on and on and on and on. Playing Fire Covenants and Triple Shock Lands and Ulcerates are a pretty good way to make sure that your games don't really drag on that long. I think One way a, or the other. I think there's a lot of taste bound up in that, but you're not wrong. That's a very subjective assessment. I'm just saying that uh, maybe think about life payment as a cube designer and what that does to your overall environment rather than as a player and just being afraid of paying your life to get some effect. I think life payment is just a very interesting decision to offer players. Yes, I agree. And especially something like Fire Covenant where it's not just, can I cast this now or not? Like Ulcerate, uh, it actually lets you figure out like what the best way to yeah, use that is. You don't is. have to use that as a Plague Wind. You don't have to destroy all 10 toughness of your opponent's creatures if you can't afford to pay that amount of life. You can just kill the flyer it's killing you or whatever. A lot of flexibility there. Or, you know, in your Enrage Heroic deck. Just uh, ping three of your own creatures. Good point, Anthony. In your Enrage Heroic deck, you can just <laughs> divide that damage around, get all kinds of triggers. In some ways, I saved the card I'm most excited to defend for last. It's the land, and the card is City of Traders. This is a land that taps for two colorless mana. No downside. Doesn't come in and play tapped. No downside, you say. Well... The only other downside is if you play a land, you do have to sacrifice City of Traders. There's a theme among a lot of these cards. Edge of Autumn, Fire Covenant, City of Traders, Ulcerate. I think people are afraid of these additional costs. And I think they look at City of Traders and they see a land that sacrifices itself and they can use once and they think it's bad. I think this card is very powerful, I should say, first of all. I think it's fantastic in almost any environment. It's hard for me to imagine an environment where I would not be excited to play City of Traders. That'd be one that would be so low to the ground, there's just not colorless pips in most cards to, to be spread around. It also, I think, compared to a card like Ancient Tomb, which I love Ancient Tomb. I love paying life, and I love tempo, so it's no surprise I love Ancient Tomb. Which is way up in the 12 to 20% category. Yeah. Ancient Tomb is a lot better than City of Traders. Like, I'm always a little concerned about Ancient Tomb being a little warping to my games, which I'm not concerned about about City of Traders. I think City of Traders is in this sweet spot where the downside is commensurate with the advantage. A land that taps for two, a soul land, is a huge advantage. It's an incredibly powerful card. And the downside of sacrificing this land whenever you play another land is a big downside. This is not like the small downside of Ulcerate. This is a really big downside. It is going to come up. It's not like the, not even really a downside, in my opinion, of Edge of Autumn, of not being able to cast it when you only have, when you have five or more lands in play. It's a real downside. Letting your players have that tool is very fun, I think. The kinds of decisions it leads to are engaging and interesting and difficult to make you basically what it, how it plays out in many circumstances is you're going to get this turbo boost for two turns i say two turns because you're going to play city of traders that turn you're going to have one additional mana than you're supposed to have the next turn 
you're going to tap your city of trades before you play your next land. And so you're going to have, on that turn, also one more mana than you should have. You get basically two turns ahead of schedule, which is a lot. And it's kind of like you get to cast a free time walk for two turns, and then you're going to have to like undo it at the end of those two turns. Kind of. We're just talking about mana here, not cards and stuff. But that is kind of how it plays out. Getting to decide when to use that like nitrous, when to use that huge boost of tempo, is a really fun decision to make, in my opinion. And it's worth noting, you draw this card late, and it's your fifth land, and you, your curve doesn't go up to seven. You don't have to play any more lands if you don't want. You can just keep it out there as a, as a free soul land, keep your other lands in hand, discard them to stuff, do whatever you got to do. This downside does come up. There are definitely times where you're like, I wish this card was something else because it's going to mess me up here. But I like cards with that kind of volatility, and it's volatility in this case that your player has total agency over. They get to decide how to put it in their deck, whether they count it as one of their 17 lands or 16 lands, or whether they count it as kind of a spell slot almost, whether they play it on turn two or three or four, they get to decide when to play this card and it does really messed up stuff. Here's the only downside of City of Traders. Oh, we haven't covered the downside yet? The actual mechanical downside of the card, I think is a upside for from a cube design perspective. I think it is a very interesting play pattern to give your players access to. Yeah, I think to. that's a great point about switching from our player hat yeah, to our designer exactly. hat. So from a cube design perspective, no downside so far. Here's the one downside. It's extremely expensive. It's on the reserve list and it's really expensive. So you can get a gold-bordered version if you want. You also can just print it out. I mean, you're not playing. Just I don't I don't know if we can advocate that. Yeah, which, is, which is just fine with proxies as long as you're not passing them off as fakes. Don't make a fake, but just you know, take an island and write City of Traders on it. Or take a City of Brass, cross out the brass, and write Traders. Easy. No problem. That's... I think a big part of why the... Well, I think that's a, a decent part I of why the, the card is I think the combination of... If it was cheap, people would probably be much more willing to give it a try. And I think you're right that there are... Like, I like, bet Temple of the False God is in more cubes than City of Traders. I would gamble. I don't know. I'm not looking at the numbers, but I would bet it is. I wouldn't be surprised. So, yeah, I think the combination of it being not easy to test, if it was, you know, a common for some reason that was just lying around, yeah. people would give it a try. But I think that people are legitimately afraid of those play patterns. I'm actually not sure where I fall on, like... How much do I enjoy playing with it? Uh, I, I could see either way. It, it definitely does lead to some difficult turn sequencing. But it is in a lot of ways just sort of like a burst of speed, like you said. It's kind of just like a ritual. Yeah. And you have to think about other factors, right? Like, I have played this in very aggressive decks with a very low curve, but you do need a certain amount of colorless spells before you're happy to play a colorless right, soul right. land. Like, in my deck that's all one and two drops, like my mono white deck, it's all one and two drops it's not going to be that great. I, I might play it if I have enough two drops that have a colorless cost so I can, you know, on turn three, play two two drops uh, with my with my City of Traders. But really what I want is some equipment, some vehicles, some other kinds of artifacts, tangle wires, stuff like that that is colorless that I can really dump that mana into. So it, it makes you think about how you play it, how you build your deck around it. It is not just free power that you can just jam in a deck and just get away with doing broken stuff. But it has really high ceiling, a reasonable downside. I think it's a well-balanced card. And not for Constructed. Don't, don't at me. I know it's a problem in Constructed. But I think it's a well-balanced card for Limited when you get to have one of it and you have to draft your deck. Yeah, I mean, it's it's context is extremely important in that in that case. Here's a very... here's a, here, Talk about edge cases. I don't think this is actually that unreasonable. This is also a land that goes to the yard for Delirium. I, I was wondering if you'd bring that and up. For Del it is. I mean, for Delve spells, Delirium spells, all these kinds of spells, you want lands in the yard. Fetch lands are great. I look at the Horizon lands the same way. There are also lands that go to the yard. You'll notice the other only non-fetch lands, non-Horizon lands I run that are color that are fixing lands are two bicycle lands. They also go to the yard. 
it's not unreasonable to think that one of the values of this card is that it's a land that eventually goes to the graveyard on its own volition, and that's a, that's a bonus. And I think it's meaningful that it, it goes to the yard the turn where you are getting the mana from it, so it's right. not impossible to imagine. You play this, next turn, you tap it for two mana, play another land, it goes to the yard, and now you can actually play your big delve spell very early. Yeah, I would say the my average use case on this is I play it on turn two or three, three two to four, and have it in play for two turns get four mana out of it and it goes to the yard and that actually ends up being fine here's the other thing on the turn where you've you've gotten two turns ahead you've played spells ahead of curve for two turns in a row and you know you sacrificed it because you hit another land drop so you know you went from three lands uh, back to three right you ended up sacrificing your thing but you're still on three lands a lot of times in those circumstances you're kind of out of resources you've kind of dumped your whole hand right. like you don't need any more mana right now you're going to draw more cards off the top of your deck there'll be more lands eventually and you just get that upside of being able to play ahead of curve. It's just one of my favorite cards to actually play with in terms of the decisions it causes. And it's powerful and cool looking, and I wish it wasn't on the reserve list for everyone else's benefit. But Andy, don't you want your collection to stay worth money? That's my number one concern. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this I record this entire podcast because I like talking about my investment portfolio, not because I care about this game at all. Yuck. So interestingly, Cubecober does actually also just let us search for cards and show us the, the exact popularity of those cards, not just the buckets. All right. Temple of the False God versus City of Traders, exactly the same. Exactly the same? Two, about 2.6%. Wow. There you go. City of Traders is a much better card. I agree. Temple of the False God <laughs> is not a good magic card. <laughs> no, it's not. Not for this context. It's a, even not that great in EDH, I would argue. I've never played it in EDH deck, I don't think. So overall, I, I feel like there is this thread of these cards that you've picked out of interesting downsides is that overall something you would encourage more cube designers to include i think so i I think that might be one of the habits of thinking like a player not thinking like a cube designer where you're like well why would i want ulcerate i would rather have doomblade right okay sure but i'll admit one of the reasons i dug deep enough to find ulcerate in the first place is that i just wanted all of the arbitrarily restricted doomblades out of my cube i have no more doomblades i have nothing else i have nothing in my cube that destroys non-black creatures because it drives me nuts Ulcerate is so clean. Three toughness. It gets rid of it, whatever it is. doesn't matter what color it is. doesn't matter if it's an artifact. doesn't matter whatever. Right. And you're actually making meaningful decisions about what is that life worth to you rather than just randomly getting hosed because your opponent happened to reanimate an artifact rather than a non-artifact or a black creature rather than a red creature. Right. Exactly. So that's why I dug into it initially. If I were to put aside all of my scruples about those random limitations and just play cards on pure power level, I would still include Ulcerate because I think one mana removal that hits so many things and i mean you can look at your own cube just like you know do a little filter search by things that are toughness less than four and see how many things this thing kills it's a lot of things so many things and it does it for one man at instant speed so yeah i i think that a lot of people think like a player and they think well i don't want downsides because i want pure upside i just want to win and as a cube designer i think giving your players lots of options to do powerful things but at costs, I think it's a very interesting dynamic to introduce into a cube. So yeah, I think that's part of it. I think there's not it's not a coincidence that there's a thread here of a lot of things that either are or read as downsides. Right, because those are part of the choices that you make in the game. And I think if yeah. we are too much thinking like players, we can end up just sort of smoothing all the edges off our game. And I do love playing things that cost you life. One of my one of my proud moments, which I think some people would look at this and be be unhappy and think they failed in some way, but Listener Feld was uh, drafting my cube and took Ancient Tomb because Ancient Tomb is broken. Ended up not putting Ancient Tomb in his deck because he was like, I have so many shock lands, I can't afford the life loss from Ancient Tomb. And I was like, wow, I've wow. done it. I've made Ancient Tomb not just a windmill slam in every single deck that's broken. Sometimes you don't play Ancient Tomb because of the life loss. Is that Was that a correct decision? 
I think Feld is a very savvy and skilled player. I don't remember the deck list in detail, but I'm going to say yes. <laughs> Wild. I support Feld's decision. Wild. Or should I say shocking? That's been it for Lucky Paper Radio. Thank you for tuning in for our defense of unpopular cards. Real quick, I want to thank all the people that left a review on iTunes after our Modern Horizon set review, especially Snake847373 and Mucho Mango, who left some very nice glowing reviews. I also wanted to say, Anthony, that you know we, we ask people to leave reviews occasionally. We don't really mention why other than we want them to. And I think it might be relevant to tell people why it's something that is important to us. Because it's because the only reason that we do this podcast is to get positive reviews because they make us feel good. Well, that's part of it, for sure. But like, it's, a, some, it's like some weird internet currency that seems pointless. Like, why do we care about iTunes reviews? And to your point, why do we care? Here's why we care. As we grow the show, we are reaching out to people to try and do guest spots. We're trying to, to make more, better, interesting stuff for you. And iTunes reviews are one of these things that give us a sense of legitimacy, right? Like, if you're some magic personality you get a lot of emails from people that are like come here on my podcast but you know it's that person's got a tiny little weirdo show with like 12 listeners or whatever so that's the kind of thing that hey that show could be great too oh my favorite podcasts are ones with 12 listeners and i'm one of the 12 for sure i'm not sliding those shows at all but in terms of like trying to reach out to people and, and give the show a bigger footprint having something like a nice big log of itunes reviews with positive reviews and ratings really helps so that's the kind of reason we like that because it helps us make a better show that's why we want to do it so it shows that we are actually growing a community and, and people are enjoying what we're doing. Yeah, and, and we get $400 for every five-star review. We do or the, the reviewer does? Uh, I don't know. We get no money for this show. We just want to make a good show for your people. Anyway, that's that. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All of the magic cards are made by Wizards of the Coast. All of the listening is done by you and all the talking is done by me and my friend Anthony, fan of Feasting Troll King. I knew the whole time. Do you want to hang out in the, uh, what do we call it? I already forgot. Kitchen table magic. The kitchen table magic zone. Kitchen table magic. Let's talk about kitchen table magic. Kitchen table magic. Uh, so I have a little magical topic. It's summertime. It's getting pretty hot. It's too hot. In some areas, it's getting extremely felt hot. felt like 103 today in Baltimore. Yikes. It was rough. Uh, and you might be enjoying some cold beverages. One of the things I am most passionate about oh, that is so stupid. Here comes the ice thing. <laughs> is I love really nice, high quality ice. And when nice. I say nice, high quality ice, I mean, it's, you know, if you get ice out of your ice machine, it's cloudy. It's got this big white blob in the center. Ugh, yuck. And that just looks horrible. Ugh. If you have really good ice, it's clear all the way through. And it's actually really easy to make at home. So big thanks to Dave Arnold of the Cooking Issues podcast. And he also has a great book on cocktails uh, called Liquid Intelligence. Uh, he changed my, my ice life. All you have to do is get some kind of insulated box, some kind of insulated compartment, whether that's a, an old igloo cooler or if you're like me, you find a silicon baking sheet and build a, a styrofoam box around it. So it's important that it is insulated on all sides but the top. Fill that with water, put it in the freezer, and let it start freezing from the top down, and you'll notice... Which is the way it will naturally freeze, because you've insulated all the other sides. Right. The way it works is that basically that cloudy, foggy core that would be in the middle of your ice cube is instead just on the bottom. So you just wait for it to almost freeze all the way, and then take it out, pour out the water that's at the bottom, and you have a beautiful ingot of clear ice uh, to enjoy a, a delicious summer cocktail. I love coming over to Anthony's house and getting the nice ice, and I will not make it for myself. It's too much of a hassle. It's worth it. You also got a shout out David Reese. Have you watched Going Deep with David Reese, the episode on ice? 
I don't know if I have seen that one. I think you would like Going Deep with David Rees. I definitely like How to Dig a Hole. That's a good one. <laughs> David Rees is... I wish I had a tenth of that men's charisma. That would be great.